uh, dig around in here just a little bit. I think you'll find something interesting I'm going to share tonight. We love the book of Job. book of Job is the thing that uh, keeps, us feeling, keeps us from feeling sorry for ourselves. The trap of the enemy. We welcome all of you that are live with us tonight. <clears throat> those will be joining us and those that will catch this podcast. So we're going to pray and we're going to go into Job chapter 3 tonight and see what the Lord has for us. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We ask you, Lord, to be with us tonight as we study your word. Give us grace and mercy uh, that we need every day so we're not consumed. We're thankful for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that we would learn the lessons that are here, that are found in this passage of Scripture here, Lord, and that we would understand that you have a plan even during our suffering. May we be able to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it says after uh, Job is going to be real. What I like about Job is in this particular passage, he's just being real. Just being real. All of us are living in the flesh, and uh, so we have to deal with all the things that entails. How the flesh puts its demands on us when God says, don't eat. Uh, You dream of the golden arches, don't you? (laughs) Somehow, McDonald's, you don't even see it until God says, don't eat for a couple of days, right? And then you see all the restaurant signs. (laughs) That's how the flesh works, and... uh, so we're going to look at this tonight and, and Job's realness about life and uh, about things that we face and how he's just being open and honest. And I've told you this before with this prayer journey that we uh, have worked with a lot over the years that when you go from the uh, gate and go through the, the burnt offering, the repentance and the laver and washing of the water of the word, and then you go to the table of showbread, and I call that having a cup of coffee with God. Just be real. There it is on the screen. Just be real. So when you come in uh, through the east gate, you repent, right? And then you, well, you come in with thanksgiving, right? Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Then you do any repenting you need to do. This is a prayer model, right? We're not telling you to be rigid or, or uh, legalistic about it. We're just telling you here's a pattern how we should come before the Lord. Then we wash ourselves. We speak the word over us ourselves. And we uh, have a cup of coffee with God. Have fellowship, communion with Him. Let the Holy Spirit get involved and enlighten us so that when we actually ask God for something, when we pray a petition then we can have the Holy Spirit directing us so that we don't pray amiss. Let me just run through this real quick again, because when you come in here, a lot of people skip all of this and run straight to the prayer petition and tell God what they'd like to see God do and run straight back out. And they call that prayer. Uh, And most of us probably grew up like that. That's all we knew about prayer was just run in and tell God but the whole idea for you to be here tonight is as you come to God's house is to minister unto him and that's how our prayer time should be and you can see all this is laid out in a cross and James said we go in and you don't get your prayers answered remember that in James because you ask and you pray amiss I think how he says it because you pray according to your will and not God's will 
And so we want to pray according to God's will. And that's why this journey is important. So you come in with thanksgiving, praise. You do any repenting you need to do. You speak the word over yourself. You have a cup of coffee with God. Let the Holy Spirit get involved and direct your prayer. And then go behind the veil and wait. But this is the one I'm talking about right here. You need to be real with God. Uh, You just need to be real. There's nothing about your life that's perfect. Nothing about my life that's perfect. None of our lives are perfect. We all have the flesh to deal with. And beyond that, you have an adversary. His name is Hasatan. In the Hebrew, we call him Satan or the devil or Beelzebub or I can think of a few other things we could call him, but he's just a bad dude. And he opposes everything that's the will of God. So if you're going to pursue the will of God, Satan's going to oppose that in your life. Don't, when you pray and hear from God, or you get direction from God, or, or insight from the Holy Spirit, don't be surprised if the next thing you see is the exact opposite of that. That's how, that's how a good opponent does, right? They set up the exact... So that's how the devil... He, he wants to discourage us, defeat us, beat us back, if you want to call it that, so that we don't walk in the fullness of God, that we don't experience that abundant life that he talks about. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then he said in another place, I've come that you might have a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. So God offers us a great journey, but He does not offer us a journey without opposition. And we're going to look at that again tonight. So be real with God. Just tell Him like it is. He already knows. Do you know, do you know that He read your mail before you took the letter opener and opened it? He knows everything. Let's say it together. He knows everything about everything. He's the only one that does. He's the only one that knows how many seeds are in a watermelon. The only way we would know that is to cut it open and count them one by one. I'm not sure we'd still get that right. So he, the, the Bible says he knows the, how many, the very hairs of our head and has them all numbered. And the way that's said, it doesn't mean he just knows how many's up there. It means he knows which one's number one, two, three, four. Now that's an awesome God. It's an awesome God. It's that involved with us. And cares about us that much. So he cares about Job. Job is his main man at this time on the earth, right? And he has a, uh, a lot of uh, pleasure in a guy who's as devoted as Job has been to him. But he's so committed to God and so uh, going to stay there and, and walk that out. God uses him in an extreme way. But we all go through trials and tribulations and we have adversity. So just be real with God. Just be real with Him. Be real in your marriage. Be real. That'll help. Just be real and and cut off the enemy so that you have chances to get in there and build up strongholds in your life or your marriage or your family or or anything, church, your business, whatever. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May the day be darkness, may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it, 
May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may the night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day and those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. And that's a great sea creature that, and also it's a reference to Satan in some ways. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light, but have none and not see the dawning of the day. Because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. So he's thinking about, he's being real, he's thinking about, man... The way my life's turned out at this moment, I'd been better off if I would have died at birth. Now, I don't know if any of us has been to the place he's at. Because I almost think there would be pride in us to think that we've all suffered to that extreme. But that's a pretty dark place. When you wake up and everything you have is gone, Your wife's turned against you and all your children are dead in less than 24 hours. That'd be a hard spot to be in. Now he's not turned his anger toward God. He's not, his wife tried to get him, you know, to curse God and die. (laughs) It's not a very good outlook, I guess. But he's wishing he hadn't been born. At least he's going through this moment of that. Now you've got to remember, Job's in the dark. He don't know all that's going on behind the scenes. At some point, he gets that information because he pins it down for us. But originally, he's just in the dark. Sometimes God takes us through things that he don't give us revelation of until later on down the road. He's just building trust in us and building character in us and integrity and helping the flesh to die. And the flesh is on a journey to die. That's God's plan is that we get to a place in our life where we can say, not my will, but your will be done. And those are easy creeds to say but they're not as easy to walk out because you have to die to yourself and don't don't feel bad about that everybody lives in the flesh there's nobody unless you all met a martian from roswell new mexico we all live in the flesh and it's not that the flesh is out and you know we we have a wonderful group of people who love the Lord and you pursue God. Doesn't mean nobody in here is perfect. But it doesn't mean you're out there living with the world and running wild. But you have to deal with the flesh. Because the flesh don't always want to yield to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wakes you up at 2 in the morning. And you know you need to get up and pray. 
the flesh will say, ah, just, you can do that later, right? Or maybe you get prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something and, and the flesh would say, hey, let's, let's go do this first. You know, just things that we deal with that don't have to be extreme. And Job's base, he's finding that out. He's facing that battle. It says, for now I would have lain still and quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Notice what he's going to say here. With kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. I think the playing field's level in the graveyard, right? It's just bones left, right? You didn't bring nothing in. You're not taking nothing out. It's just level. The guy over there whose monument looks like the greatest thing in the graveyard is as dead as the one that's got a rock about that big with something scratched on it from the 1800s. It's all level there. And that kind of, he's kind of illustrating that, oh, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together, and they do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and greater there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is the light given to him who is in misery and alive to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Now, you may have had a moment where you thought, I'd be okay if I just left here. You know, you've probably maybe had a moment like that in your life. Maybe you had a moment where you thought, well, all this pain and suffering would be better if I was already gone on to be the Lord. You know, I've had a kidney stone a couple of times. I've had that thought. <laughs> Anybody ever had a kidney stone? <laughs> yeah, I thought, eh, it might be better to just to go on. Uh, but to have your whole life turned upside down like Job, and not really have the understanding behind it. What do you think's going through his mind? He's hanging on to God, but you know he's hearing all those voices whisper. Well, you, the Lord's not with you, right? The Lord's against you. Then his friends are going to come by, start off easy on him to some degree, and then really start coming after him. And he says, uh, uh, he says, where is this who search exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? He says, who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasure. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is the light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. Now you remember... When Jesus was on the cross, well, before He went to the cross, He showed us that He was living in the flesh, right? When He was in the garden, He, he was feeling the weight of all that. And He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, can you imagine living your whole life staring at the cross? See, we have an advantage in one way. We don't really know how we're leaving here. 
maybe later on. But I mean, we've got plans, we've got things. But think about Jesus at 12 years old in the temple teaching everybody. But also knowing in 21 years he's going to be hanging on a cross. He knows it. He knows what's going to happen to him. He is the Word made flesh. He knows he's staring at that cross. How to stay focused and undistracted staring at that cross. Jesus living his life here. He, he, we, we know he knew it because we, he told them. He would be telling them, say, the Son of Man is going to suffer. I mean, he told them. And he, he, he showed his supernaturalness many times. So we know. He, he said, I saw you over, before Nathaniel, when Nathaniel showed up. He said, oh, I saw you over there under that tree before you ever came into our circle. He knew. He would be around people and he'd say, let me tell you what you're thinking. Right? He told his disciples, said, go loose a coat. He wasn't in town. He said, but there's going to be a coat tied up over here. Go get him and tell the master I need him and whatever. He said, hey, Peter, uh, you need money for taxes? I wish he'd tell me this. Go down to the <laughs> sea. Go down to the sea. There's a fish down there with money in its mouth. I love Jesus, don't you? He's so awesome. So he knew. We don't really have that unless maybe at some point in life we get a diagnosis and we may can see things coming. But to know that very day, that Passover season, you're going to hang on a cross. So he prayed, right? He, he's in the flesh, but he's God in the flesh. And he said, if it's possible, speaking to his Father, let this cup pass from me, right? He felt the weight of that. He said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so he surrendered to the will of the Father. But here, Job said, the thing I fear greatly has come upon me, my groanings, and what I dreaded has happened unto me. Jesus felt all of that. Job is feeling isolated. He's feeling probably forsaken. What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, Job's not for, God's not forsaken Job because we get the backdrop. God's in charge here, right? He told the devil, he said, you can do this and do this, but you can't do this. So we know God's in charge. So we get the benefit of knowing the backdrop before we read the story. But Job's having to walk through that. Same thing with Jesus. The Father never forsook Jesus on the cross. Everybody says what the preacher believes. And I think he's right. <laughs> At that moment, I believe there was a moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross where all the sins of the world were laid on him. Now, this is heavy to me. It makes me want to cry thinking about it. Jesus had lived his whole life never knowing sin. He didn't sin one time. He's the only one in the history of the universe that can say that. He didn't sin one time. So he didn't know fully other than he hadn't experienced it himself what sin does to us. It separates us from the Father. And in order for Jesus to be that high priest that Paul talks about in Hebrews, he had to experience it all. Now, although he never sinned, Let's make that clear. 
He felt, he took our sin upon himself. And I believe when he took our sin on him, he felt the separation of what sin does to us. Therefore, he is the perfect high priest, able to secure or to comfort us in our time of need. Without sin, yet all the sin was laid on him, so that he carried our sin. And although the Father was right there the whole time, He felt what Job's feeling, and greater obviously, He felt what sin does to us. It separates us. The world is suffering not because they don't have enough money or there's not enough scientists or enough doctors. The world is suffering right now because it's separated from the Father. That's what's causing all the pain and suffering is this separation from the Father. And so the Father withdrew His hedge temporarily here uh, uh, for, uh, for Satan to come in on Job, but he's still in control and orchestrating, has the bookends up where Satan can't only go so far. He said, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. And you think about Job, he's probably thinking, what's next, right? Hold your spot there and let's go over to Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to show you something here that might help you understand why you and I suffer sometimes. Why we go through some things uh, that in our lives. Let me tell you some folks who suffered. Daniel suffered. Job suffered. Joseph suffered. Samson suffered. Isaiah suffered. Jeremiah suffered. Paul suffered. Peter suffered. John suffered. Jesus suffered. Remember what we read last week, Peter? He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's talked about Jesus right prior to that. And Peter said, arm yourselves likewise. In other words, be ready to suffer some. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Let's go to verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify Himself uh, to become a high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is the guy who shows up to meet Abraham. Abraham and Melchizedek have communion first. The first recorded incident of communion that we know of between the wine and the bread. Now, I'm sure Adam and Eve and all of them had some level of communion with the Father. That's why I've told you over and over and over, the New Testament church has abandoned the Old Testament to their own peril. If you go to most churches, they'll never, most of them don't even use the Old Testament anymore. <clears throat> but I've told you that just those two things, baptism and communion, was going on long before the New Testament. They were just reinstituted in the New Testament by Jesus to help us understand all that was supposed to show us Him. Those were all pictures. Abraham done communion before the law. He tithed. For those people who say that tithing is under the law, no, no, no. Abraham tithed before the law was ever given. He had communion. And Paul talks about that in this same book that the Levites were paying tithes in the loins of Abraham. If you're tithing, you're setting your whole family up to succeed. You're setting your children, your grandchildren, everybody up for that. 
So all those things, and that's what I, I'm frustrated with the New Testament church. We act like there's only uh, uh, just the New Testament. We, but the whole Bible is God's counsel to us. And Paul said the things that were written about Israel are for our learning. So God is speaking to us, and I'm thankful that the book of Job is in there because I go back to the book of Job. If I want to feel sorry for myself, or I, we all have days where the devil makes us think that God's not hanging around or that we've had it harder than anybody else today. That's not true. And we've got things in here to remind ourselves of that. So Abraham meets this Melchizedek after the battle, and they, he, the Melchizedek brings out the priest of Salem, later Jerusalem. He comes out with the wine and the bread, and, and Abraham actually pays tithes to him of all the spoils he just got. He brings a tenth of that to the priest, the high priest here. And this priestly order is different than the Levitical priesthood because it shows up before, again, shows up before the Levitical priesthood. And it's a priesthood that's introduced to us in the Bible as having no, uh, no, nothing behind them, just out of the blue, right? To typify Jesus coming from heaven, that he, didn't ha he had a heavenly father, not an earthly father. So Melchizedek is printed to, presented to us like that in the Bible so that this is a different priesthood. It is an eternal priesthood, an everlasting priesthood. And so that's why Jesus is of that order. He wasn't of the order of the Levites. That is a priesthood that is earthly. He was of the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on, he says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries, speaking of Jesus in the garden, talked about just a minute ago, and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, that's a capital S, by the way, yet he learned, that's capital He, by the way, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. A couple of things I want to tell you about Jesus. You already know, but I want to remind you. This is a powerful statement here. If this is said about Jesus, how much more is it said, should it be said of us? He, and then when the devil showed up, you need to remember this. Even Jesus could have called legions of angels, could have done whatever. But when the devil showed up to tempt him, he used the word of God. He used the Old Testament to shut the devil down. Now, if Jesus Christ has to use the Word of God to back off Satan. Don't think Satan's going to back off from you because you get mad and upset or cry. You need to use the Word of God on him. In fact, over in Jude, when Michael's dealing, the archangel's dealing with Satan, who was an archangel himself at one time, when they're battling over the body of Moses, uh, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he used the authority of God. He didn't even use his own authority. So we need to take some lessons from that. You don't just back the devil down because you get mad and fuss a little bit. He laughs at that. We back him off when we submit to God and use his word. That's when we back the enemy off. We don't back him off. He don't feel sorry for us. He's not afraid of us. The only one he's afraid of is the Lord. And Christ in us is the hope of glory. 
And he says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience to the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus suffered things being perfected in this journey. Matured, complete is probably the best word there. We know Jesus had no flaws. He did no sin. So that word there means complete. His mission, everything about what he was called to do, completed. Called by God as high priest, according to the order, he says it again, of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priesthood that perishes, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. So we won't get into all that tonight. But you see how that suffering, let's go back to uh, 1 Peter, just real quickly on over. Let's look at, uh, uh, where do I want to take you? Let's go to chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Actually, let's go back to chapter 3 just for a minute. He says, in verse 14, man, I'm wanting to read all this to you, but it says, if you sh- in verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid for the threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason, the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is for the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So just because you're doing good don't mean you're not going to suffer. And especially the kind of culture we're going into in this country, you're going to suffer. If you're going to stand for Jesus, uh, you're going to suffer. Look your neighbor and say, cheer up, it's going to get worse. <laughs> now look what it says here in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for uh, the just for the unjust, right? He took our place. Uh, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, right? Uh, where the, uh, the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah, with the ark which was being prepared, and few, as eight souls were saved. There is also an antitype which also saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having made subject to Him. So Jesus went through so much tough stuff for us. He suffered on our behalf. Jesus, let's go back to chapter 2. Bear with me. (laughs) He says, He is this lively stone, right? In verse 4, coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, speaking of Christ, chosen by God, Precious, you also living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Therefore, it's also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Remember, we talked about a lot of this last week, that this chief cornerstone was rejected. It was rejected by the world, but this was God's will. This is what God wanted us to... He wants us to... Follow Christ, follow in His footsteps that we could, we're going to have to suffer as well as we go through that. Now let's go to chapter 5. 
It says, uh, <laughs> let's see. Look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Strength training is important spiritually. You may be under the power or the, 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 the stronghold. You may be under adversity. I'll get that word right here in a minute. You may be under that adversity of Satan, but God is watching over your life. And He's bringing you and allowing you and I to go through certain times of adversity because He's building character and strength in us. He's teaching us obedience. He's delivering us from sinful activity. All of that is part of His goal in our lives. And so He takes us through this journey. It's called what we would call, maybe in some circles, sanctification. He's taking you on a journey of sanctification through which your life begins to die out to yourself and you become more like Him. John said this. When they, when they came to John, they said, all your guys are leaving and following Jesus. And they were actually trying to stir him up. As if to say, all your guys are going over there. And John's response was, he must increase and I must decrease. What if we all had that kind of attitude? What if none of us sought our own? Listen, let me give you some New Testament scriptures. Let me just run them off for you. What if none of us sought our own, but we sought the welfare of others? What if we cared more about the things of others than we do of ourselves? What if we preferred one another? We, could, we, need to, we tend to forget this, and preachers are probably the worst for it. We don't, they don't know we're His disciples by how smart we are, or how big our church is, or how small it is. They don't know we're disciples by how good we do church service. The Bible says they'll know we're His disciples by how we love each other. And if you go to most churches, they'll major on everything but that. It's about me. Get out of my way. Why don't I get to do? Why shouldn't I get in front? Why shouldn't I be? Why shouldn't I? Won't you just keep loving people? Because in due season, He will exalt you when it's your time. But if you make life about you, and if you're always getting offended because you don't get to do or God don't help you or God is there, you, you won't ever get exalted by God. God wants us to humble ourselves in His sight and He will exalt us in due season, in due time. That's the kind of God we serve. Do we pay our dues? Yes, we do. But we pay them in secret. Not out in front of everybody. And that's the difference between those who get exalted and those who don't. When, Je when, when Samuel come by, he said, Jesse, God told me to come over here. His next king's coming out of your sons. And Jesse said, well, here they are. He lined them all up. And Samuel went down the road. And he couldn't find the right guy. He said, is this all your sons? And he said, all the young ones out there, but he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel said, go get him. And bring him in here. And when they brought him in, he was the one. You know why he was the one? Because he was being faithful out there on the backside of the mountain where nobody was watching but God. 
We want, to get, we, want to, we want everybody to see us. That's the nature of the flesh. But, but David was out there being faithful to God when no one else was watching. He was killing that lion. He was killing that bear. He was taking care of the sheep. He was ministering to the Lord. He was being faithful. And God said, he told Samuel, he said, don't look on the outward appearance because David didn't look like the part. But what, he, what did God say about David? said, that's a guy who's after my heart. He knew it. What about the Apostle Paul? Some people get, get, a, get some kind of feeling that they're supposed to do something from God. The Apostle Paul, who's the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth outside of Jesus Christ, when he got saved, he left and went to the desert for three years to wait on the Lord. Because God will exalt you in due season when it's time. But He's looking for those people who are will humble themselves. Even Jesus didn't even seek any notoriety. He'd say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Go do what Moses told you to do. If we live the New Testament Christianity, where we preferred one another, where we bear one another's burdens, when we see a brother in fault, you which are spiritual. Now, let me show you the modern translation. When you see a brother or sister in fault, you which are spiritual, get on Facebook and Twitter and talk about it. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says, you which think you're spiritual, go over there and restore them. That's what the Bible teaches. It don't teach it to give out some gossip in the form of a prayer request. It says, you go, if you're spiritual, prove it. You don't prove it on the platform. Prove it by going over there and getting that guy out of the mud. That's how you can prove how spiritual you are. Preferring. And then he goes on to say, considering yourself, lest you also are tempted. For that person who thinks they can't fall, what Paul say? Let him take heed. Because he that thinks he stands, better take heed lest he falls. And so that pride is the original sin that we talk about. That pride that entered into Satan's heart. That caused him to want to overthrow God or be like God. And then he tried to live that through Eve when they were here and, and, and she fell for it, right? It's interesting to me that the sexually immoral crowd that's sweeping our world and especially in our own country, is their, their title is pride. How ironic is that? How stupid is that? That's stupid. I'm going to go ahead and say it. That's stupid. I'll, I'll take the hate mail for that. It's stupid to see that the guy who was created in heaven had it made perfect, that the very thing that cost him his position, and now he's doomed forever, is the label you want to wear. But that's what sin does. It blinds us, it causes us to make poor decisions, and one bad decision after another leads to destruction. That's how this works. What does Paul say? The wages of sin is death. The only thing that keeps that from happening is for us to turn and embrace Jesus and come away from that life. Whatever the sin is, it doesn't matter what the sin is. We just have to come away from that and follow Him. Because if we stay living a life of sin, whatever it is, we will find the wages of that will be death. And so God wants us to be humble. He wants us to live out Christianity. To prefer one another. To bear one another's burdens. To care more about the things of others than the things of ourselves. That's tough Christianity. 
And then Christianity runs its tentacles so deep for the mature Christian. When we all start out with God, we try to figure out what we think are heaven and hell issues, right? And so we say, oh, I don't want to do that because that's, that's a hell issue. I want to, you know. But as we walk with God, we get to a place to where it no longer has to be a heaven or hell issue in our mind. It can just be whatever God's asking of us. Right? That's when you know you've matured. How many times have you heard this maybe in your own life? Well, that ain't going to send me to hell. That's not the issue. The issue is, did your father ask something of you? And if he did, are you going to say no? Now, I want to clear up something for you in the book of Psalms before I close tonight. In the book of Psalms, there's a verse in there that's been uh, added. They added some words to kind of clear it up, but it's not in the original. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is is not in the Hebrew. In other words, here's how the Hebrew says it. The fool has said in his heart, no God. It's not a fool that don't know about God, that's never heard about God, that don't believe in God. That's somebody that's, got, that's blind that's never heard the gospel. It's a fool who knows God and tells him no. That's a fool. That's a real fool. It's not this guy over here in some foreign land that's never heard the gospel yet and God's getting ready to send that to him. It's a bigger fool or a real fool for somebody to know who God is and tell him no. I was in Arizona several years ago and Doug Weed, Doug Weed who was, uh, worked in the, the administration of the first Bush president, the father Bush, he said he was telling his story and I was in one of his uh, sessions and he was telling his story and he was talking about the authority of God and the sovereignty of God and how he sets the guidelines and his will is done. He said, uh, <clears throat> he said when George Bush became president, some of you have heard me tell this, when George Bush became president, the first Bush, he said, he asked him to be in his, in his administration. Somehow he said, I didn't even know George Bush. He said, but somehow I got asked to be a part of his administration. He said, and I wasn't even for George Bush. He said, I was for Jack Kemp. I think that was who's running against him in primary. He said, but after it was all said and done and he became president, he said, I got an invitation to be on his staff. And he said, you know what I did for four years? And see, it's stuff you won't read in the newspaper. He said, what I did for four years, he said, I spent four years getting Christians out of jails in foreign countries and bringing them back to America. And he said, that, he said I didn't even know George Bush. He said, that tells you how big God is. To, he said, I wasn't politically involved or nothing. He said, but the Lord put me in that spot. You see how big your God is? And then he made this statement. I'll never forget this. This is one of those things you hear and you carry it with you the rest of your life. He said, if the Lord walks in in a black suit and white socks, he said, we all know that's not kosher, right? You don't wear white socks with a black suit. Well, nowadays you might. I don't know. But when I heard this, you didn't. <laughs> and he said, but who's going to tell God? Who's going to walk up to God and say, you can't wear white socks with a black suit? We got the point, right? He said, tomorrow, we'll all walk in with, black, with white socks and a black suit because he sets the standard. 
And man, I thought that was so light and heavy all at the same time. See, your God's in charge. Now, what if God asks something of you that doesn't have nothing to do with your eternal destiny? He's just asking something of you because you're his daughter and he'd like for you to do something. You going to do it? Are you going to argue with him and say, well, that don't really have any eternal significance? Well, let me say something. Anything God asks you to do has eternal significance because he's an eternal God. And so that's where we want to mature to. We want to mature to a place to where God can ask anything of us and we don't sit around and try to figure it out whether it's worth... We don't try to figure out its value. That's when you start getting an eros in the flesh. You start, well, what's that going to do for me? Who cares what it's going to do for you? Can you not just do it out of agape? Does eros have to be in everything? You, you see what I'm saying? We can even have eros toward God if we're not careful. Well, what am I going to get out of it? Well, you've already got eternal life. What else do you want? <laughs> uh, we've got it made. We really have it made the, with the work of the Holy Spirit and all that God's done. So here's what I want to remind you of before I close on that. Suffering is part of our journey. He said He'd never leave us nor forsake us. He said many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. We know the ultimate delivery is when we go cross over to the other side. So knowing Christ is the main thing. But this, this journey we're on brings us into moments of trials, adversity, and suffering because God's building character inside of us. He's stripping away this flesh so that His Spirit can come out of us more and it'll be less of Matthew Robbins and more of Jesus. I'll leave you with this. I don't want to bust anybody's bubble. But the world don't need to see you and me. They need to see Jesus. We don't save anybody. They need to see Jesus coming out of us. I, I, I heard them say this about Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the guy who, when, his, um, when he, he was going to be a lawyer, he graduated law school and he goes to his professor, I guess the one he admired the most and was, bidding him farewell, and his professor said to them, said, Charles said, when you leave college, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to get me an apprenticeship. And he said, well, then what? And he said, well, I'll find me a wife. And he said, then what? He said, well, I'll start a family. He said, then what? He said, I'll have my own practice, hopefully. And he said, then what? I'll raise my family. He said, then what? He said, I'll retire. He said, and then what? And he said, I'll die, I guess. <laughs> he said, and then what? His professor led him to the Lord with the then what's. And Charles Spurgeon became one of the most prolific preachers the world's ever known. Another guy, story they tell about Charles that you couldn't get into his services at some point. And so one of the ushers had, was waiting out to close the doors and tell everybody that hadn't made it in they couldn't go in. And one guy begged him to let him in. He had come a long way. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you can have my seat. He said, I, and told him where the seat was. He said, but we, he said, when you come out, 
He said, you got to tell me what you think about my preacher. Because he loved his pastor, his preacher. And so he sits in and said, the service is over. And here the guy comes out. And they said, he was kind of moving away. And the guy said, hey, we had a deal. He said, I gave you my seat so you could tell me what you thought about my preacher when you left. And he said, preacher? He said, all I saw this morning was Jesus. That's how we all need to be right there, right? That's what needs to be said about us. All I saw was Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for men and women that have kept the faith in front of us. Some we read about in the Bible. Some we know about in history. Some we know in our own family, in our own circles. People that have kept the faith all the way to the finish line. Let that be us, Lord. And let us be the people that live out what you teach us in the New Testament. Let's not make it about what we do in service. Let's make it about how we treat one another. How we love one another. How we prefer one another. I love you, Jesus. You gave us a great example. And you have so many wonderful people in this book that are great examples to us. I pray your blessings upon this church. I pray for you to be with the, <clears throat> the Patterson family as JC has gone on to be to his reward. I pray for the Cox family that they've lost their mother. And I pray for <clears throat> the Lefevre's family that's on the verge of losing their mother. And just so many, Lord, that you're calling home. And we know we got a word about that about three and a half years ago that you were going to take some of the older righteous folks on home. And we're seeing that, Lord. And we've seen a lot of that in the last three years. And so we just give you praise for that. We pray for you to comfort these families and be with them in their time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.